Before you're seated, we invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2. <clears throat> we left you hanging a little bit uh, with the Christmas holiday season and not finishing up the life and times of Elijah. And so we are really finishing our late summer series on uh, great Bible stories every kid should know. And as we hit this uh, passage in 2 Kings chapter 2, we're going to learn about uh, the, um, I guess if you want to say promotion of Elijah in our passage of Scripture. He and Elisha have a journey that they take, and God teaches us some great lessons there. Let's look at verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. We'll read on down to verse uh, 14, verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 2. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked. that Suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. <clears throat> and Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? When he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the word. Give us instruction that will feed and enrich our souls. Apply these truths that we will learn today to our hearts, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our passage of scripture is an interesting story. And of course, we know the song that says, Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home. And we've often thought about the idea of that's how you would be brought into the presence of God, or certainly we think that's how Elijah was brought into the presence of God. And yet it's not exactly what we read, is it? It's not the, the chariot of fire. And I, I remember as I was uh, somewhere back the line, there was a, a message or something I came across that said, you know, if Elijah had gotten into the chariot of fire, he may not have gotten to heaven without dying because the whirlwind was, was, was his way. I'm not sure where that theory came from. I'm not sure what the purpose was. And I've had to wrestle a bit trying to figure out why in the world would there be a chariot of fire and these horses that would travel on through, split the two men up, and then the whirlwind. The word for whirlwind is a gust of wind. It's that kind of a stormy wind. When I was a little kid, I was a skinny little kid. A lot of you were skinny little kids too, I'm sure, when you were little. My father used to make fun of me when I didn't want to eat all my food. And he'd say, you know, you're just going to be a string bean, skinny as a piece of bacon. And a wind's going to come along and blow you away. And everybody's going to say, where did he go? It's not exactly what happened to Elijah. And most of us don't have to fear that kind of thing happening with us. However, there are some amazing lessons in our text, as always. You know, this, this great story of what we find in chapter 2 is designed to teach us the lessons of God's goodness and grace. One is it obviously illustrates the rapture. You don't have to die to get to heaven. It doesn't have to be that way. 
And so though we know about Enoch, who was walking with God and was not, for God took him. We don't know if anybody saw that. All we know is that's what's recorded in Scripture about him. Elijah was taken, and there's a good reason for his being taken. Uh, and I think we can figure that out as we look through Scripture, at least have a real strong suspicion as to why. But Elisha got to watch it, and there was a connection there between Elijah and Elisha. Uh, God knows the right time for things. God knows what he wants to bring about. And though we think we would like to have things at our convenience, that's not how it works. God knows when and where. And you can't help but see this passage where God does a miraculous thing and think back to 1 Kings 19, where Elijah ran to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, on the energy that God gave him through that meal the angel provided for him. Off he goes to Mount Sinai and in Horeb waits and says, Lord, kill me. God says, no, that's not what I'm here to do. That's not the plan. But go find Elisha, and here's your task. And then however many years down the road, God said, now it's time. In our text of Scripture, we're going to find that God revealed to Elijah. Apparently, it appears revealed to Elisha, and also to the school of the prophets, that it was time for Elijah to be assumed into heaven by God and, and in God's plan. And it's interesting to observe as we walk, work our way through, what was Elijah doing? Knowing he was going to go be before his maker and speak before his judge, what did he do with his time? It's kind of instructive. And it's also interesting to see what Elisha did, because he stuck to him like bark on a tree, like glue. He wouldn't let him go. And yet you also find the school of the prophets, which is where Elijah makes that circuit. He has three different schools that he has set up in the intervening years from that time at Horeb, Mount Sinai, till this day of his being assumed into heaven, he's been busy. Not a lot's recorded about it, but he's been busy. He knew there were 7,000 who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal, and he develops this school of prophets and picks three locations, and each one is significant. And then God says, enough, it's time to come home. And he continues his work until God takes him. Lessons? What are you doing with your time till God takes you? What's undone? Because God can take any one of us at any minute. And we need to live that way. Well, our text of Scripture, there's about six different segments to this chapter. Um, and for some reason, you know, I don't know if it was just the, the letter P got stuck in my head or something, but uh, I see the, the, um, the persistent protege in verses 1 through 7, the persistent protege. Then there is a, a particular a passion that we find in verses 8 through 10 that is being given. Then peculiar proceedings in 11 through 13. Then there's a plain proof in verse 14. And then there are persistent prophets in 15 through 18. And then finally pronounced powers in 19 through 25. A lot of Ps. Uh, I'm not sure how far we're going to get in this because technically we're thinking about Elijah and we find the beginning of the story of Elisha in here too. But, so we'll try to glean from it some lessons that will be a benefit for us. But there's a persistent protege, verses 1 through 7. Look at verse 1. It came to pass when the Lord was about to take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Now Gilgal is a unique place. Gilgal was a place where the children of Israel came into the land 
of Israel, they had stopped eating the manna and began to eat of the fruit of the land. And in Gilgal, they set up the tabernacle for the first time in Israel proper, that land given to them by God. So it's a very unique place. There's a purpose here in the location. It's not in the same realm of uh, Ahab and his kingdom. It's a different track that it appears that Elijah has taken. But he's coming from Gilgal with Elisha, his servant. If you go back to chapter 19, uh, 1 Kings, you read these words about the circumstance of the calling of Elisha. Verse 8, 19 of chapter 19. So he departed from there, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. He was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him, threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? In other words, you're not signing on to Elijah. You're signing on to the Lord. He threw his mantle on him. That takes uh, a picture or helps us understand what's taking place in 2 Kings chapter 2. But look what further it says, verse 21. So Elisha went back from him, took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using oxen's, the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people. They ate and then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So he has been serving Elijah because this has been God's plan. It's what God called him to do. Now, as these prophets, these schools of these prophets are being set up, these schools of prophets seem to be being trained and taught and being taught lessons. Gilgal is a place of lesson, isn't it? You go to the place in Israel where God set up the tabernacle first. You go to the place where God had the children of Israel camp out first and say, this is the location. There are lessons here to remember. Let's drink in the atmosphere of the fact that God's going to bring victory. And that's what God did. He established a place of rest, so to speak. But it was rest in anticipation of the big things God was going to do. For from there, they went off and had their conquest of the land. And the land that, that was not finished, even to the day of Elijah, they had never really quite fulfilled all of what God had called them to do. So at Gilgal, very significant place. Yet Elisha, serving with Elijah, has this unique place as a protege. And yet he's a servant. That's all he's acting like. That's all he is anticipating being until God calls Elijah away. He does not plan to become anything else, and yet he's being trained. He'd had the mantle thrown upon him. The mantle's an interesting uh, garment. If you go back to the book of Joshua, chapter 7, Achan gets into trouble because he sees a garment that's inlaid and it's, it's, it's rich and it's embroidered. The indication of that term is an indication that it was a garment that was kingly. It appears that certain garments had certain um, illustrations of who they were to be. Uh, a garment of a prophet and a garment of a king would often be woven out of animal hair. It would be something that would show his status. So a prophet and king would be looking at these clothes that, and identify them as such. This says who you are. It's, a, it's symbolic of the office. And so when Elijah cast his mantle on Elijah, there was something unique about that. Elijah, though, while Elijah, Elisha, while Elijah was on earth, was content to serve. He was a servant of this man who had been used of God and very solitary man, very unique individual, somebody who was full of faith 
And yet Elisha was satisfied to simply serve, though he'd had such a great honor of having the, the garment cast upon him. Achan paid a high price, and his family as well, for grasping after something that wasn't his. Elisha didn't grasp. He served. and That's all he was. And yet he was serving among these prophets. And I imagine as a servant among the prophets, he didn't necessarily stand out per se, but he knew God had a plan and he was willing to wait on God's time. So he works with Elisha. Verse 2, then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. Why the word please? Well, because he wasn't commanding him. He wasn't ordering him. It wasn't a word from God. And yet it'll be interesting. We'll see him do this at each one of the stops. Elijah, Elisha, just stay. Don't, you don't need to bother. It's okay. Sometimes I wonder if what he was saying was on one hand the idea that Elijah was satisfied to be alone. He did that at Cherith, didn't he? And yet God would call him into the public eye and then God would take him out of the public eye. God would bring him in for some significant thing and before whom he stood as, as, uh, as the prophet of God. And yet he, I think he liked his quiet. What was he doing on Mount Sinai anyway all by himself if he didn't like his quiet? Elisha, you can stay. You don't have to come. Please just relax. But Elisha wasn't about to hear any of this. Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. What's Bethel? Bethel is the place where Jacob rested. And you, he saw the vision of the ladder and that communication of heaven to earth. And he found this blessing of God that rested upon him. It was a place of communion with the Father, with the God who loved Israel. And so as the school of the prophets has these little locations, Gilgal is significant, Bethel is extremely significant in communion with God. Oh, how good it is to be in the presence of the Lord. I wonder if the prophets did kind of circulate about among those places and take the time to think about the significance of where they were and what it meant. So there they were going to Bethel. Elisha said, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel together. Then we find in verse 3, now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you, not, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? In other words, this was not a secret. His day, this was going, before this day was out, um, Elijah was going to be in the presence of God. Elisha was no longer going to have Elijah as the head over him. What that is an illustration of is the idea of sitting at the feet of a teacher. So the teacher sits above you and there you sit at his feet. And so he's kind of above your head. So they're saying he's going to be removed as the head over you. No longer will you be the taught one. You won't be the student anymore. Don't you know that that's what's happening? Interestingly enough, that's not the focus of Elisha. Elisha's not planning what he can do and how he can change this when he gets leadership. He's not thinking about what do I do tomorrow and what is, the, what is my procedure and what are my dreams. None of that. And so his response to them is very telling. At the end of verse 3, he said, yes, I know. Keep silent. Don't distract. Don't bring me away from the fact that I'm his servant until God says the time is through. That's instructive as well, isn't it? We're servants of the Most High God. Our life is not done till God says so. Till God says our time is through. That's important to understand. 
And to understand we have a mission as a servant and to be satisfied as a servant unto the Most High. So Elisha says, keep silent. Verse 4, then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. So you find him doing this hopscotch from one place to another. Jericho, what was Jericho? Jericho was the place where the great and, and significant and early battle and victory that God brought for the children of Israel. Actually, it wasn't much of a battle, was it? Marching around the city once, first day. Once again, the second day. Once again, the third day. All the way up to the seventh day. Then they marched around seven times and God brought a great victory by crumbling the walls. They went in and destroyed and took this city and turned it over to the Lord. Great victory. School of the prophets, of course. What a great place. Remembering the victories of God and how it was all of him and not of them. I'm going to Jericho, Elijah says. The Lord has sent me on there. So Elisha says, the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. So we find him continuing on with Elisha, Elijah, continuing to serve and work with him. I'm not sure how many more times I'm going to mix those two names up, but forgive me when I really mess it up and you know better, because you know something more than a preacher does. <laughs> I'll probably not realize I said it. <clears throat> and you'll also do the same thing if you teach this lesson. If you notice further, he says in verse 5, Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? Do you get the sense that Elisha's got these voices coming at him and that are designed perhaps to distract? I mean, well-meaning. Do you know, Elisha, do you realize? Elisha, do you know that tomorrow our relationship's going to be different? Elisha's not taking anything for granted. And he's also not being distracted from his role. What's God called him to be? A servant. And nothing will change that until God says so. And so we find a similar response from Elisha. <clears throat> Verse 5, so he answered, yes, I know. Keep silent. You know, there's that same heart in Elisha that Ruth had. I'm going to go with you, Naomi. I will not let you go. I'm going to, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm going to go with you. Nothing will keep me from being with you. Believers, do you not see the heart of a, di of a disciple here? One of our challenges as individual Christians is to actually remember that we are to stick like a disciple to our Savior and not walk away from Him, to be glued to Him and not let anything distract us from that main call in our life. We are called out ones, just as the original 12. We are called out ones to walk with our Lord. Don't let anything distract you away. Throughout your life as a Christian, I am sure you bump into people who say, you know, I was a churchgoer once, but then this happened. Or that person did that. Somebody said this. I just, I can't stand the hypocrisy. I, I'm done with that. I'm happy to be content to... Just worship God right where I am. I'm just going to be a silent Christian. Did Elisha have that luxury? Do we really have that luxury? Absolutely not. Well-meaning and good prophets said to Elisha, don't you know that your master will be removed from you today? He says, I know. Shh. Keep quiet. I have one task. I have one mission. Believers, we have got to remember that God calls us to his mission. Don't let anything get in the way of that. 
Notice we fur further that verse 6. <clears throat> Once again, Elijah said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. What's the Jordan? Well, it's the beginning of leaving the land of Israel, if you're on that side of the Jordan. Why are you going to the Jordan? Because you're going to go through the Jordan to the other side, it appears. I'm going to the Jordan crossing, the place that God had brought his people into the land. And so God's calling him away, it appears. What's Elisha going to do? The land of promise is on this side of the Jordan. He said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now, interestingly enough, they know what's going to happen, but they're not going to see it, these 50 men. And just a chapter before, 50s have been sent to Elijah by that king, wanting some answers. Here's another 50, but these are the prophets. They come and they watch, and they see this miracle that's going to be repeated by Elisha as he comes back, and it's essentially going to show that God's power rests upon Elisha. <clears throat> They're watching from a distance as they stood by the Jordan. <clears throat> now, Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water. It was divided this way and that way, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. It's a miracle that God did. This last miracle of Elijah, but it will be the first miracle of Elisha. Very interesting section of Scripture that we have seen where a persistent protege will not let anything take himself from the role that God has called him to take. The particular passion, or if you want to call it another P, portion, verses 8 through 10. What is it that he will ask of Elijah? Because thus far it's been quiet. There's been no request. But verse 9 says, And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? A great old Puritan writer said this, Notice the word before. If you want to ask something of a saint, don't wait till he's dead. As some religions say you can. Ask something of a saint while he's alive. Because once he's dead, he can't do anything for you. You go to the Lord then. There is no saintly intervention from some saint long gone. No miracles that get uh, communicated. Our, our worship is to be to our Lord. And so interestingly enough, just that little word before here reminds us of that truth. Elijah, what can I do for you before I'm taken away? Because after that, there's nothing else that I can do. Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Interesting question. It's not the genie in the bottle kind of a question, but it is a question that says, what is there? I've been, and they've been communing all along. They've been talking together. There have been issues of wisdom, issues of conversation, maybe memories that they've shared. Or what was it like, Elijah, when? Tell me your story. And as these things are being communicated because they're great, fast friends, Elijah says, what can I do for you? Ask. So Elisha says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Did you ever scratch your head and say, what does that mean? Now, we know when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives at the point of salvation, this is New Testament talk, at the point of salvation, every person who trusts Christ receives the Holy Spirit. He, you can't get more of him. You can't get twice of the Holy Spirit, like twice blessed. That's not what the text is about. As a matter of fact, 
if you look at this subject of a double portion and look at it in the context of the Jewish thinking, you would go back to the book of Deuteronomy. And there it talks about the firstborn son receives the double portion. In other words, if you had three sons, you would take your wealth and divide it by four. And so two of the sons would get one each, and the firstborn son would get two. Double portion. So he's not asking for the Holy Spirit twice, nor should we be asking for the Holy Spirit twice. Literally, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not getting more of the Spirit. It's him having more of you, if you want to think about it in those terms. It's the Holy Spirit's control being fill, filling up our day with Spirit-led decisions. That is, biblically, uh, the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament. The Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon believers or individuals who were designed for a specific task. And so what was happening is Elijah obviously was being led by the Holy Spirit. He was a prophet. The Holy Spirit had come upon him to lead the people of Israel to lead these other prophets. And of course, these other prophets had interactions with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or they would have not been able to prophesy as they did. So Elijah's request was that he be set aside as if he was a firstborn disciple of Elijah, desiring to have a role of leadership. Servant leadership is what he's talking about, isn't he? Now, I know there are commentaries that talk about, well, uh, maybe that means that he would have double the, the blessings that he could do, the ministry that he could have, you know, double the power of what he was accomplishing. But isn't it Elijah who is the, the herald of Jesus Christ? John the Baptist is pictured, a picture of Elijah coming before the Lord comes in judgment. And so the Elijah must come before the Messiah does, is what we read in the New Testament. Elisha will not be that. Elisha will die, not Elijah. Elijah will be assumed into heaven without having died. It'll be like our rapture that we look forward to. And so technically, as you look at the scriptures, Elisha doesn't do greater things. But there's a possibility that his ministry went twice as long. That's a possible answer in a way, because he would have done had the opportunity to do twice as many miracles simply because of the time of ministry that he had. It's a fascinating thing to think that double portion literally means, as best as we can tell, let me lead the prophets in your stead. He had been a humble servant, and now he is a humble uh, inheritor, so to speak, of the firstborn obligations and responsibilities. And so he says, a double portion of your spirit fall upon me. So Elijah says, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly. You see, there's this communing going on and Elisha is not going to let go. And now he has this word from Elijah. If you see me go, God says yes. If you miss it, then God says no but if you see me go. So Elisha waits, and Elisha waits with this particular uh, passion, this particular portion of what God has to provide. Then we find these peculiar proceedings. Something unique never happens again, and yet we find it in Elijah's story. Verse 10, so he said, you have asked a hard thing. Verse 11, then it happened as they continued on and talked 
that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. You can just picture this incredible sight of the chariot of fire and horses of fire swooping down, dividing the two men as they fall aside one from another, or perhaps Elisha falls away and is separated from Elijah, and he looks back to see then a whirlwind catches up Elijah and carries him off. What a sight that must have been. Well, what's the significance of all of this? <clears throat> there are not a lot of texts that talk about chariots of fire, but there are enough indications that kind of show you some things. First of all, Elijah doesn't die. Why? Because he will be the precursor of the Lord coming in his judgment. You look at the book of Revelation, and there are the two witnesses. They have these characteristic miracles that they do. They come before the final judgment of Jesus Christ, and he will herald. That's what Malachi 4 says. He will be a heralder of the Lord, the Messiah, when he comes to judge. And so, therefore, Elijah is significant and necessary, and it appears this is the way God preserves him for that day. Moses appears to be the other one. God sets a guard over Moses' body. There's a unique little story in, Ju in the book of Jude and also how Moses died that it appears that, the, that God guards him for a reason. And it appears there must be, especially when you see the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah speaking with Christ, conferring together and speaking together. There, it's a unique place. So Elisha watches this and Elijah is not carried off by the chariot of fire or by the horses. Who were they? Interestingly enough, angels appear, like seraphim specifically, appear to be burning ones. And uh, there are places where there's an interchange of fire and ministering spirits. The book of Psalms, Psalm 104, Psalm 68, talk about the, 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 the hosts of the Lord. Why did Elisha see this? Because there's going to be a day when Elijah says to his servant, Go out and look. And the servant's eyes are opened. And he sees the hosts of the Lord gathered about on the hills. Why does Elisha know that God protects, that God preserves, that God has a host of angels, of servants, of spirits? Why? Because he knows that God did that with Elijah. He saw this chariot of fire. Literally, the word chariot here is a war chariot. Elisha needed to know that because he's going to be surrounded by the enemy, but yet the hosts of the Lord are greater. Believers, isn't it a wonderful thing to know that God is greater than any enemy you have? And you know that, though you haven't seen all the hosts, you have seen one or two instances in your life as you walk with the Lord where the Lord was greater. That gets you ready for the next challenge where you will find once again, the Lord is greater. And he will be greater in the next one. It's a fascinating passage. The war chariot comes through with the horses thundering through. And yet Elijah's picked up and carried away by the whirlwind into the presence of God. You know, I've been thinking about this. Elijah, if I were him, I would have probably said, let me just go find another juniper tree and just wait. <laughs> Not because I'm discouraged. Because this is a very private thing to be carried into the presence of God. But you know what, Christians? We can't always do that. You can't pick where the Lord carries you away. You can't pick when that appointed time is when God says it's time to come home. 
but yet you do have an illustration from Elijah. Don't make it a private thing when God calls you into His presence. God's able to carry you into the presence of God in victory. We don't know what that's going to look like. Sometimes we fear our own death, don't we? What's that day going to be? But remember this. The hosts of heaven surround you. But taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is every man that trusts in Him. The angel of the Lord camps round about them that fear Him to deliver them. Let that carry you. That hope, that trust carry you when you're on your deathbed. Because God will glorify you in that visible picture of the victory of sin. That's why death is here. Let him have victory over sin and death and hell because of the faith God's planted within you. Elijah shared his last moments with Elisha. Wasn't afraid to. And God called him into his presence. God will call you into his presence, believer. It is time, in his place, trust him. Trust him. Remember, the angel of the Lord encamps around about you too to deliver you. So we find him carried off. In verse 12, Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. Literally, this is God's protecting grace. God loves his people, will not let them go. And yet he cries out to the one who's been his shepherd, who has sat over him as a teacher. My father, my father, there's excitement going on. There is that idea of that breaking in that relationship because it is God's time. And he says, look at the chariot of Israel. So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. There's a mourning here, and yet he also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. What he did then was he repeated a miracle that we will see next. In our text of Scripture, the plain proof, as we look here, of the fact that God had given him the answer to his care. His question is verse 14. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, struck the water, and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? When he'd also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over it. Of course, the prophets saw it. They're the persistent prophets, verses 15 through 18, where they say, um, We see in you the same miracle that Elijah did. So now you're our leader. But, you know, you tell us he was carried away in a whirlwind. What if God dropped him off somewhere? Because we've never heard of this before. And so they, he, they pursue a search party from, uh, with permission from Elisha. And he finally says, go. But they don't find him. Why? Because God took him. Believers, if the Lord tarries if, uh, to come during your lifetime, if he determines to come during your lifetime, there will be the rapture of the church where God will call you so you don't have to die, but called immediately into his presence, Tra changed and transformed, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, these are all known to be true. Why? Because we see this story here of Elijah. God did it with Elijah. God translated him without having him see death. The promise for the church age saints is there will be a generation who will be alive when the Lord returns for his church and the Lord will transform those who have died, bring them with him, restore them to their bodies, bring them into heaven for, uh, and into his presence, and in the same time take those living saints and transform them, translate them with a life and a body that's prepared to live for eternity. That'll be a miracle that God will do. That's the rapture of the church. And pictured here 
with the story of Elijah, Elisha and Elijah. The last two miracles, just to finish the text, uh, are, are statements of the work, the pronounced powers of Elisha. One is a healing of the water. There's a water or a stream that comes by out of the, the mountain of, of temptation, they call it. Down into the Jericho area, the stream comes out and forth, and it's known as Elijah or the prophet's stream. And uh, if you go to Israel, they'll stop. The bus will usually stop right next to this water, and they say that's the place where uh, Elijah, Elisha performed the miracle. And, of course, it was bitter at one point. Uh, he says, just take a fresh bowl, a new bowl, put salt in it, dump it in, and it'll be a miracle of God. And they say to this day, it's good-tasting water, it's sweet, and, um, and so it stands as a testimony of the reality of what happened centuries ago. The second story is of some very bad kids, it seems to say, but actually in the original language, they're older young men. Uh, they're young men, but older than teenagers, older than little kids. They begin to make fun of Elisha. And they say, go up, thou bald head. In other words, you too in a whirlwind, don't even come here tell us God's word. You just go. You just leave us alone. And they call him bald head. Whether he's bald or not, we don't know. But it was always uh, thought of as a disgraceful thing. And at least it was, they would call a person a bald head, even though he may not have been because they were making fun of him. So Elisha was being told, go just like Elijah. Get out of our life. And so Elisha calls a judgment upon them, and a bear comes out of the woods. Bears do and eat them up. Two illustrations of the power that God had given to Elisha that was picturesque of the power of Elijah. To bring this all to a conclusion, when we think about Elijah's lessons, let them work their way deeply into our hearts. Elisha, this man who's loved sol Elijah, loved solitude, loved God's blessing, loved the presence of God, had been through victories and had been through some defeating times too. Elijah had this blessing from God because God said, now is the time. When God picks the time, God knows what he's doing. Elijah picked another time and God said, no. But when God said, come home, what a blessed story. What lessons are here for us? And he did so in not a private manner. He didn't come up with something brand new in a hurried whirlwind that he needed to accomplish before God took him. He just did what he always did. Met with the prophets. Went around to the schools of the prophets. There was nothing unfinished. And there at the last moment he was with his servant that God had told him to go and call and to bring him along. He was doing what God called him to do. When the Lord returns for you, what will he find you doing? Are there things that you should be doing and that you would have to hurriedly get done? Or are you ready? Are you willing? Are you serving? Because that's what God has called you to do. Until God says no more service on this earth, are you serving? Great lessons for us, aren't there? Elisha says, let a double portion of your spirit fall upon me. Why? Because servant leadership is important. Let me lead I've been with you and served, and I've learned what this is about. I've loved this. Let that be true. And then God makes the final decision, doesn't he? Elijah doesn't say, sure, it's you. He says, it's God's choice. Lessons all through the text for each one of us. Let me give you a few moments to bow and speak to the Lord and to worship him in the quietness of your heart. Father, I thank you for this um, wonderful passage for many of us who have
been raised in Sunday schools, that it's a passage that is well known to us, and yet the lessons are still pronounced and quite necessary for our everyday life. Teach us to serve, teach us to be faithful, teach us also to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ came to serve us and give us that illustration of servant leadership. Father, oh, how he loved us, and oh, how he loves us even to this day. Teach us the meaning of discipleship. Teach us the meaning of service. Teach us the meaning of love. Teach us, Father, to love you with an everlasting love and to depend upon you and obey you every day. And Father, I ask that you'd be pleased to use us for your service, even as you used Elijah and Elisha and the prophets. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.